I encourage you to open up your uh, scriptures to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. I know it's been said probably two times already, but I'm going to say it again. I am very thankful and blessed that you are here, uh, those of you that can be in this room, and um, I know that, uh, that that is a bit of a commitment, just trying to dig yourself out enough to be able to get to your car and drive here, uh, and I realize that those of you that are joining us online, uh, many of you just couldn't be here. You wanted to be, but you just couldn't be um, Maybe because you're enjoying your time in Florida. I, we have like folks in our church family that are down in Florida, you know, watching us online. I don't know if I feel bad for them, but I'm thankful for them. But some of you guys, you just couldn't even get out of your houses, and we know that you would want to be here, but can't be here. And some of you can't be here for other reasons, and you want to be here, and we want to thank you for the fact that you're joining us online today. Um, we've been talking about our reboot series. Uh, this really is, is the last one in this particular series. We are still asking ourselves the question, how do we respond? We focus on who it is that we serve. We focused on God and who He is and the fact that He is the one that should be supreme in our lives. He is the one that should have the preeminence in our lives. We talked about the authority of Scripture and how it should be the one thing that dictates how we live our lives because it's God's Word to us. Pastor Josh emphasized the importance of prayer last week when we were outside in the balmy temperatures of minus six-ish, better than minus 16 before, the week before, um, and reminding us that we need to be a people of prayer and what prayer is and what it's not. And it, he, as he said last week, he said, I don't really need to challenge us that we need to pray more. We all know that we need to pray more, but sometimes we lose sight of what hinders our prayers and um, why a praying is so effective and what makes praying so effective. And so it's important that we focused on that. And then this week we're going to really be focusing on how do I live my faith in the world around me? And so if you've turned to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 16 where Jesus is talking to his followers. He just gets done teaching them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and so on. And he goes down through what the Beatitudes are. And then at the end of those Beatitudes, and in verse 11 and 12, he reminds his followers that because they serve God, before, because they follow him, they will be persecuted. He doesn't say you might be persecuted. He says, you will be persecuted. It's just the reality of being a believer. And then coming right off of those statements, he tells the believers that they are salt and light. And that's what we're really going to dive into and focus on this morning. How I live my faith, well, I'm gonna, I should be looking like salt and light to the world around me. Now, just before I open us up in a word of prayer, I want to share with you that I went to the doctor this week. Um, it's the time of year where I, or the time every four years where I have to renew my license in order to be able to keep my class four so I can drive the church buses. Um, I probably should let that like go and, and get Levi on the stick here and get going. But anyway, I'll help the guy out some. I need to get a physical done. 
So I uh, made an appointment with my doctor, and so we were going to do the, the basics of that motor vehicle physical. And when I um, was led to the room and I, I, I was sat down, the, the nurse or the, the, the person that was kind of doing a couple of preliminary things before the doctor came in, uh, they took my blood pressure, which is the pretty common thing to do, right? So she takes my blood pressure, and she takes my blood pressure again, and then she says, maybe you should just sit and take some deep breaths <laughs> before I take your blood pressure one more time. Now, I, I'm, I'm getting what's going on here, and she finally takes my blood pressure the third time, and I'm like, uh, I didn't bother to ask the first two times. I figured if we've done it three times, I know the first two times are really bad. And I said uh, the last time, hey, what, what was my blood pressure that time? And she's like, it's still too high. And I'm like, oh, okay. And she told me the numbers, and I'm like, well, what was it last time? And she said, oh, the doctor will let you know. So the doctor came in, and, and, and he looked right off the bat. He knew what I was in for, but uh, he's like, wow, I noticed your blood pressure is awful high. <clears throat> and I said, well, I did change my role at my church from youth pastor to lead pastor. I said, a lot more stress on me. That it, that's probably why, right? And he said, no. <clears throat> um, though that may, may be a little bit, I don't know. But uh, we then got into the discussion of, hey, how much, uh, I think the way he worded it was this. Um, when you sit down for a meal, is the salt and pepper shakers like around a lot? That was his gentle way of saying it. And I said, well, I really don't add a whole lot of salt to my diet. I said, aside from cooking. He's like, what about sauces and soups? And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> we use those. He's like, there's an awful lot of sodium in that. You know? And then he proceeded to tell me some things that I needed to work on on my diet and so on to try to bring that blood pressure down. And in that particular conversation, the idea of salt, the, the discussion of salt is not a positive thing. It's not a beneficial thing. My doctor was talking to me about how I can cut salt out of my diet because that will actually help bring some of that high blood pressure down. But interestingly, in this particular passage, Jesus actually calls Christians salt and light. And in that particular instance, that is supposed to be a good thing. And so as we talk about living out our faith, we're going to be talking as Christians about what it means to be salt and light to the world around us. Now, there are a variety of passages of Scripture that we could get into in talking about living out our faith. This is just one of many, but this is where we're kind of hanging our hat this morning as we get into God's Word. Let's start by praying together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the fact that we can be here this morning. I do thank you for each and every person that is here. I thank you for the fact that they were able to uh, dig out their cars and that the roads were clear enough, at least for them to be able to get here so that we could gather together and worship together. And I want to thank you for that. But I also want to thank you for the fact that we have technology enough that for those who would have liked to have been here or who, who, are, who just cannot be here because of health issues or because they're actually not even in the province, that they can be a part of the service online, that they can sing praises to you in their homes as we sing praises here, that they can open up the scriptures and they can 
be taught from the Word of God by your Holy Spirit as we look into the Word of God here. God, I pray that when we are done this service that we would be able to say that it was a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. I pray that you would just speak to us now that maybe we need to take an evaluation of our lives and ask ourselves, if I know Christ as my Savior, if I call myself a follower of Jesus, am I really being salt and light? God, if if we have to say no, I haven't really been the salt and light that I ought to be. And God, I pray that we would confess that to you And we would seek a desire for you to purify us and stir us up to be what you've called us to be in 2022. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Nothing too complicated, pretty straightforward couple verses here. But there's something that needs to be said when we're talking about Jesus saying to his followers, you are salt and you are light. And then these statements that come after those, there is a presupposition that Jesus is making. There is a reality that Jesus is addressing when he makes those statements that sometimes we are not even willing to acknowledge. Certainly our culture is trying to tell us that it is not so. And this presupposition is summed up really well by G. Campbell Morgan when he states this. Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, the disintegration of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation, and because of his love for the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was salt in order that the corruption should be arrested. He saw them also wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amid mists and fog, and he knew that they need what they needed above everything else, was light. See, Jesus is making this statement to his followers, understanding two very clear things about the society that he was living in and in the world that we live in in general. And that is that it's corrupted by sin, that at every turn that sin is seeking to destroy everything around us. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that even creation groans because of the curse of sin on it. We see it in every different avenue. We see it in the fact that we just had a huge winter storm, and with that storm comes lots of destruction. 
We see that as sin breaks down relationships between parents and children, between husbands and wives, between friends, co-workers. We see that people walk in darkness. Ken actually talked about it. We as human beings, it's in our DNA that we worship something. And as human beings, in our natural bent, we strive after idol, after idol, after idol. And there are always things that are not God. You ever notice that? People groping for the next thing to worship, the next thing to follow, the next influencer to influence them, the next philosophy that's going to make life better. And yet Jesus knew that what people really needed was salt and light. And we as Christians, if we really want to have a biblical worldview, is to understand that the world is corrupt and decaying, and that it is dark, and it's darkening. For all of our technology, life hasn't gotten any better. How, do I, how can I say that? I want, I want you to think about it for a second. When, when smartphones were coming out, for those of you that are old enough to remember what that was like before them, how many of you can actually remember before the internet? Wow. Boomers. I don't even know if that's the right word, but I hear it said as a criticism, so I'm going to throw it out there and sound young and cool. But I remember that. Like, I literally remember when the internet was first coming in, and my best friend's older brother was kind of a tech guy, and he was into it. And he was trying to explain it to him, and I'm going, what? So where is this? Well, it's just out there. Well, I didn't understand. I still don't understand, but it works, so I use it. But, you know, with all of our technology, when, you know, the invention of the smartphone, everybody's getting a smartphone, oh, it's going to make us way more efficient in our jobs. We're going to get work done faster. We're going to get work done better. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then it's article after article now about how smartphone use just continually preoccupies us and, you know, how once you're working on a task and then you move away from that task and you look on your smartphone to whatever, answer an email or check out a TikTok video or, I don't know, see a post. It takes up to 15 to 20 minutes to re-engage into the activity that you were doing before. How is that efficient? How is that making life better? For all the information that's at our fingertips on the internet to be able to learn things, there's article after article writing about the fact that we're, we're seemingly in our society getting dumber and dumber. Or we have accusations of misinformation or disinformation. Wait, I thought we had all the information at our disposal. How can it be misinformation? We have philosophy after philosophy that we are in, in, engaged in, and yet as we see those philosophies play themselves out, it's to the ruin of societies. We have all of these things at our disposal, and yet our world is getting more and more corrupted, more and more dark. That's a biblical worldview. That's the understanding that Christians should have about the world that we live in. 
contrary to what our world is trying to tell us, which is, no, things are getting better. We're evolving into greater human beings, and eventually we're going to be able to do all the things that we ever wanted to do, and we're going to have a perfect society. And been listening to a lot of podcasts or comments or teaching from Christians who are engaging in culture, and they're bringing to light this idea that if you pay attention, there's an awful lot of talk about utopia. Hey, if we continue to do this, we will get to a society where everybody's equal and everybody is loving and everybody's kind and everybody gets fair shake at everything. You can hear that philosophy all you want, but it ain't going to happen. Not by sinful human beings, that's for sure. The only paradise, the only perfect place that's going to exist is the one that God creates, that God establishes, because He's the only one that's perfect. And yet that's what we hear constantly, over and over in our society. So Jesus understands the world around Him. And in understanding that world, he's telling his disciples there are two things that they ought to be, salt and light. And so as we think about our, us being salty, I'm going to use that as a good word. I've been accused of being salty. That is not a compliment, okay? We can be salty Christians that way. We should not be salty Christians that way. But in the good sense, we are called to be salt and we are called to be light. There's two things in this statement that I want you to understand right off the bat, that this is an emphatic statement. You kind of see it in, in the English, but if you were reading it in the original language, you would see it more. You'd see it better. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. What Jesus is saying to his disciples, in essence, when he's emphasizing this, is it could read this way. You are the only salt and you are the only light. Now what Jesus is saying there is not that we are more important than he, but that of all the things in our society around us, only Christians are the true salt and only Christians are the true light. In other words, if people really want to see what the salt from God does and what the light from God does, they're going to find it in believers in Jesus Christ. They're not going to find it in a different philosophy. They're not going to find it in a different religion. They're not going to find it in a different worldview. Now, I understand that that's very exclusive, but that's the truth of it. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. You can't get more exclusive than that. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the only way. I'm the only way to salvation. I'm the only way to spend eternity with God. I'm the only one that's got the truth. And so as Christians living out our faith, we are the ones that have the salt and the light for the world around us. And we have that from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a plural statement. The word you in both of these statements is plural. In other words, Jesus is talking to all of his followers. He's talking to the church. Yes, that is a command for us individually, but that is a command for us as a church to be the salt and the light in the society around us, in the world around us. 
But understanding that that's plural, that means that when I'm saying that to you and I'm saying that to me, I'm not saying it to the wide group and then you can sit in this room and say, wow, that doesn't really apply to me. That's for the whole group. One of those realities, you know, when we said, hey, we're, we are going to do this, you know, the royal we, or you do this and you're talking about the plural. Unless somebody really takes ownership of it, everybody sitting in that room goes, ah, oh, so-and-so will do it. I won't have to do that, so-and-so will do it. You know, we, when you use the royal we, how many of you use the royal we? We are going to do this. You ever notice that the we never seems to do it? It's like, we're going to do this, but there's always one person you have in your mind that you're like really expecting to do this. We are going to paint this room. Really? Doesn't seem to always work that way. It's plural. It's addressing all believers. It's addressing the church. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the full-time ministry leaders. It's not just the elders or the Iwana leaders. We probably really should get the Iwana leaders to do most everything anyway, right? If you've given your life to Christ, then that's you. You are salt and you are light to the world around you. So it's important to understand what the salt and the light are. Now, I've already said it, but I will say it again because we need to make sure that we understand this completely. Christ is the source of our savor and source of our light. He is the ultimate source of light. John 1.9 talks about it. John 9.5 talks about it. John 8.12 says it. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. I am the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me will not walk in darkness. Jesus says it. He is the light. And we are a reflection of that. We are not the, the inherent light. Christ is the inherent light. He is the source of it all. But if I say that I follow Jesus Christ as my Savior, then I best be reflecting the Savior that I have in my life. If I have the Holy Spirit of God living within me, then I better be the salt to the world around me. So what do we know about salt and what do we know about light? Let's, let's talk about the salt first because Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything, but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, as salt, we are meant to inhibit corruption. Some commentators say it's more of a passive thing, that if we are living out our lives faithfully before God, then whatever area that we're in, whatever conversation we're in, whatever workplace we're in, whatever friendship group we're in, uh, the life that we're living of integrity and righteousness and honor before God should inhibit the corruption that tries to invade that space. So, we, we've talked about it before. I find that it's less and less likely now. But we, you, you've heard it said, I've, I've said it before because I've, intera- I've, I've, I've seen it happen in my own life. You're, you walk into a room, the conversation goes towards, you know, the, the fact that you're a Christian and then all of a sudden the conversation seems to change. I've actually seen that as a pastor. Hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. If anybody knows what that is, sometimes if it's in a particular circle, I'll say I'm a minister because some people don't necessarily nowadays know what a pastor is. 
But the moment you say it, all of a sudden everything gets really awkward. Because now the conversation that they may have wanted to have, they're not going to have because, well, the minister's here. Or the language that they want to use, they're not going to use because the minister's here. Or they're just waiting for the, when's the guy going to start telling me about church and telling me about religion or telling me about Jesus? And it gets really awkward. But you know what? If I am a follower of Jesus Christ and I have the Holy Spirit of God living in my life, my presence, the life that I live in the circles that I'm in should inhibit the corruption. Both of these functions influence the world around us. By definition, an influence must be different from that which it influences. Let me say that again. By definition, an influence must be different than that which it influences. We talk an awful lot today in social media circles about influencers. So-and-so is an influencer. So-and-so is an influencer. Oh, I watched this influencer. I want you to think about that for a second. And ask yourself the question, if you are following that influencer, what are they influencing you for? What are they influencing you to or about? Are they an influencer that you actually want to be influenced by? Because by definition, if they are going to influence you, then they need to be different than that which they're influencing. So if they're influencing you, they're different than you. How are they different than you? Is this the kind of different influence that you want in your life? Because as Christians, if we're supposed to be influencing people for Christ, then we need to be different than the people that we're influencing. If I'm walking into a room and my language and my behavior and the way that I do my business or whatever is no different than the unsaved people around me, how am I going to influence them? I'm not any different than them. That's the reason why Jesus gives that warning. But if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? If I call myself a Christian, I need to be living like a Christian. How do I know what that even looks like? I need to be in God's Word. That's why two weeks ago we talked about the fact that the Scriptures are my authority. This is what tells me how to live. This is the only place that I find out how to live. Salt's been valuable in human history, throughout human history. Aside from something that inhibits corruption, it's also extremely valuable. Romans held that except for the sun, nothing was more valuable than salt. Oftentimes, soldiers were paid in salt. That's where the phrase, not worth his salt, comes from. You might not even realize that, but if you're a business owner, try to start offering your employees salt for payment. See how that goes. But in the Roman Empire, that was valuable stuff. In the ancient Near East, salt was used to bind covenants. It was like notarizing an agreement today. When you made a covenant with somebody, you exchanged salt to demonstrate that you were serious about holding to, to that covenant. Whether Greeks or Romans or Jews in Christ's day, they all recognized how valuable salt was and how important it was. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the people hearing that were saying, hey, I'm valuable and I'm important for the cause of Christ. 
we ought to be valuable and important for Christ in our day. How valuable and important are those who are sold out and living for God? I want to give you two instances in Scripture of what would have happened differently had righteous people been found. In Genesis 8.32, God was willing to spare the destruction of Sodom if only ten righteous people could be found there. Now, that was a number that God was willing to settle on after, uh, after Abraham got him there. Abraham plays God, God, would you spare Sodom if I can find 100 righteous people? Sure, I'll do that. Can't find 100 people. What about 50? Yeah, sure, I'll spare it for 50. What about 10? Couldn't even find 10 righteous people in Sodom. And God destroys that city. But you know what? If there had been 10 righteous people, people who served God in that city, God would have spared that city. Because they would have been valuable and important for the cause of God in that city. But there were none. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord tells Jeremiah to search Jerusalem, and if he finds one just and righteous person, he would have forgiven Israel. And he would have relented from the destruction that he was bringing down on the children of Israel. One, if he had just been able to find one righteous person in that city, he would have spared them. And yet Jeremiah searches and he can't even find one. Before we think, well, it's, it's just me. I'm, 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 I'm just a believer in Jesus. What can I do? You know what, if you're sold out for Christ and you're living the way that God wants you to, to live and you're being salt and you're being light, you can have an amazing impact in the world around you. And that is what God has called us to do, be salt and light. You know what, it's not just valuable and important, it's not just something that inhibits corruption, but it's also something that is important when it comes to being an antiseptic. A cleansing out of, 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 of infirmities. You ever heard of the phrase rubbing salt in the wound? How many of you have heard that? If I ask you a question, if, if I ask you this question, rubbing salt in the wound, would you say that that is a positive or a negative connotation? If, would you say negative? How many would you say negative? Okay, how many of you would say positive? Jason's right. We tend to think this phrase to be in negative terms like adding insult to injury, but it's actually not, the, not so. The phrase salt in the wound comes from the days when salt was rubbed into wounds as an antiseptic. During the early centuries when England was establishing its navy, most sa sailors were forced into service. While at sea, punishment was often lashes with a cat of nine tails. These whippings would almost always break the skin and salt was rubbed into the wound to prevent infection. In this way, salt in wound was very literally st a stinging phrase. That's not my joke. I got that from one of my commentaries. So don't blame me if it's lame. But even back in ancient times, doctors would sprinkle wounds with salt in hope of fighting off infection. Since salt was an antiseptic that performed a negative function for preventing meat from spoiling. It also had the positive function of disinfecting wounds. 
being salt can be a positive thing. When we're salt to those around us, we can be pointing out the wrong behaviors, the sinful things in the people's lives around us. It might sting for a bit, you know what, but it's actually for their benefit. Why? Because our goal is to lead them to Christ. Our goal is to help them to see that they need a Savior because the life that they're living is sinful and has separated them from a holy God and that the only way that they can be right with that God and spend eternity with Him is to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. They need to see that they need a Savior so that when you present the Savior of mankind to them, they're willing to trust Him as their Lord and Savior. Now we know that not everybody responds that way. Sometimes when we live as salt to the people around us, it just makes them more bitter and more angry and more hard-hearted. But you know what? That doesn't give, give us a reason to stop being salt to the people around us. God says, you are salt of the earth. We are to be salt to the world around us. Christians, as salt, have an, an inhibiting effect on the corruption and spiritual disintegration of our society. We also have a preserving influence. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution, such as was experienced in France at the time of the 18th century, was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, and great acts of parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there was such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. I want you to think about that for a second because I think we've lost sight of this as Christians. We're talking about having a biblical worldview here. That as Christians, our lives need to be so salty and so light-filled that we are literally impacting every part of our society. We've seen it before in this country. We've seen it in England where their Christian influence is so great that it impacts all of our society from the top down, from the prime minister down. We have adopted in our culture this mentality. I remember talking to a few years ago to a younger Christian, 20 years my younger, and we were talking about Christians and politics and how do we relate to these things and how do we interact with these things. And I had this Christian say to me, you know what, I don't think Christians should be involved in politics because I don't think it, that we should be legislating morality. And I thought, this is a sad state of affairs if we as Canadians, as Christian Canadians, think this way. Because somebody's legislating their morality. And so it, if, it, if it isn't Christians, then it's a morality that you and I are going to look at and compare to Scripture and say, this is not biblically right. This is atrocious. This is absolutely wrong. This is immoral. And we are seeing it today. Because Christians have decided that they'll take a step back and say, you know what, my salt does not extend. The light of Christ does not extend into certain spheres. 
It needs to be held back and kept in this room on Sunday mornings, and that's it. It's allowed to be in my family a bit, but that's it. I can't even bring it into my workplace because I don't want to be that person that preaches. I don't, I don't want to be that Bible beater. I don't want to be... The reality of it is, is that being salt and light means it impacts every part of our society, every realm that I'm in as a Christian. My salt and the light of Christ impacts the society around me, the culture around me, my workplace, my home, everything. Jesus then goes on and says, light, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand so that it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your, your Father in heaven. Light is obvious. Light works openly. Light primarily works through our teaching and our preaching, our communication of the truth of God's word. We can be salt in the world around us, but you know what? We also need to be light, which means I can live for Christ and I can impact those around me by having the Holy Spirit of God working and moving in my life and the way that I live my life, it inhibits that corruption around me, but you know what? Somewhere along the line, I need to open up my mouth and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to open up my mouth and I need to speak truth. I know we've, we've heard it said, I don't know who it was that said it, Sir Thomas Aquinas or Sir Francis of Assisi or somebody, Saint somebody or other, where it's, you know, um, share the gospel and, and if necessary, use words. I don't even know if that's a, even a, a, a legitimate quote. I don't know if we've misquoted the poor guy or not, but the fact of the matter is is that I'm pretty sure we've probably taken it out of context from what the person meant, and if that's exactly what they meant, then that's not biblical. Because somewhere along the line, I need to open up my mouth and I need to communicate the truth of God. I can't just witness based on my behavior. It's not possible. Somewhere along the line, I need to communicate the truth of God's word. It not only reveals what is false and wrong, but it also helps produce what is righteous and true. We need to understand that when light is talked about in Scripture, Light indicates the true knowledge of God, Psalm 36, 9. Also a cross-reference to Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Light in Scripture also indicates goodness, righteousness, and truthfulness, which are talked about in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. It also talks about joy and gladness and true happiness, Psalm 97, 11, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and 60, verse 19. When we are the light to the world, we are indicating and communicating the true knowledge of God. We are, we are communicating goodness and righteousness and truthfulness and joy and gladness and true happiness. We live in a world that is absolutely hopeless, and yet we have the hope of mankind. And we are unwilling to share that with them. How does that make sense? John MacArthur says it this way, in its fullest sense, God's light is the full revelation of his word, the written word of scripture and the living word of Christ. 
Jesus is the true light, and we are to be his reflections. I want to finish off by reading this passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in for nothing. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. We are to be shining as lights to that world. The problem is this. We as Christians, we as a church, maybe we haven't been the salt and light to our society that we need to be. Maybe we've been losing our saltiness. That danger that Jesus talks about is not talking about losing, its, uh, losing our salvation. That's not the point that he's making. He's talking about being corrupted by the world to the point where we are completely ineffectual for Christ. That should really bother us because Scripture makes it abundantly clear that every one of us who have called on the name of Jesus Christ in this room and watching online, we're going to stand before Christ some, one day in the future and we have to give an account for what we have done for Jesus on this planet. What a shameful thing it would be if we stood before the Lord and we said, yeah, I trust that Christ as my Savior, but I really didn't do much for Jesus when I was on the, on the earth. I didn't really live the way that God wanted me to live. Some, but I really wasn't all that salty to the people around me. I was salty in the wrong ways. wasn't salty in the right ways. wasn't really much of a light and never bothered to tell people about Christ. What a shameful thing that would be to stand before your Savior and say, you know what, I really didn't do a whole lot. In fact, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word good there, just so that we understand it, really emphasizes not so much um, a, uh, the, the quality, but the attractiveness that we are living lives that are so pleasing to God that, it, that it's seen as attractive to the people looking at us. Well, I want, I want what they've got. I don't understand what it is. It offends me a bit, but I want to know more. Every time I talk to them, they're telling me about Jesus. They're telling me about the truth. They're not lying to me. They're not pulling a fast one on me. They're just giving it to me straight. Attractive lives that bring glory to God. That's what we're commanded to be as Christians, right? We're supposed to do everything in word and deed for whose glory? God's glory. Nobody else's. Are we being salt and light to our generation? Let me encourage you. If you have to ask yourself the question, am I influencing the world around me or is the world influencing me? Let me encourage you. Confess that to God today. Seek God's cleansing from that sin and ask him to help you be the salt and light to the world around you.